2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, why do we collect the things we do? Pokemon cards, antique tea sets, sneakers. According to Daniel Krozek, a behavioral and brain scientist who collects pinball machines, collecting can help to connect us to our childhood selves, relive special moments or recall memories, build community. Collecting may even have an evolutionary basis. Animals collect. We'll learn more from Crossick about our impulse to collect, and when it can turn into an unhealthy obsession. And we want to hear from you. What do you collect and why? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. US antiques and collectibles boomed during the pandemic, according to industry watchers, and because of the popularity of 80s trends. Nostalgia is a key reason we collect the things we do, says Daniel Krozik. Vinyl records, old furniture, gnomes. And this hour, we talk with Krozik, a behavioral and brain scientist, about the cognitive and even evolutionary reasons behind our collections. So tell us, what do you collect? And how far have you gone to add to your collection? What does your collection mean to you? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on our social channels, or by calling 866-733-6786. And Daniel Krozick joins me now. Welcome to Forum.
0: Hi. Happy to be here. Hi.
2: Let me begin by asking you the question that we're asking our audience, Daniel. What do you collect?
0: Well, I am a pinball collector. So those uh, big old pinball machines you would find in arcades. Um, Some of us get hooked on those. So uh, they're lovely to look at. They have art. They have the ability to play. So it's this very sensory experience. And once you buy one, you become hooked and you tend to want another and another. The problem being they're not small and they're not light. So all of us in the pinball collecting community find ways of storing them at, at parents' houses or in storage units or somehow getting past that space problem that you get, get with collecting big items like that.
2: Yeah, so it sounds like a pinball machine is definitely a commitment, so it must mean something special to you. What do you think the pinball machine means to you that, that makes you want to make that effort?
0: Well, for me, it was something I did with my brother as a kid back in the 1980s. We would play pinball machines at every location we could find, like arcades and shopping malls when they were a big thing, and bowling alleys. They would always have pinball machines. And so I think between the two of us, we got into the hobby. We start wanting to know about the designers and the eras. And so for me, there's a large nostalgic component to all this. I really like the fact that uh, it was something I did with my brother. And it was also part of my childhood, which childhood memories have a unique space within our minds where uh, they're just different. You know, they're foundational and we enjoy recollecting about those memories.
2: Tell me about your favorite pinball machine in your collection.
0: That would be Haunted House from 1982, and this was a time when mm-hmm. Pac-Man and Space Invaders were dominating arcades. The pinball companies and pinball manufacturers were busy at work trying to do innovative things. And so this game actually has three play fields. So it has an upper upstairs, kind of a middle level, which is typical for a pinball. And then it has wow. a window in the middle, and there's actually a, a basement level. It has wonderful Bach, Toccata, and Fugue music and lightning strobes on the With glass. And so um, it's just a very cool sensory experience. And it's tied to childhood memories, as I mentioned earlier.
2: So talk a little bit about the role of nostalgia, childhood memories, and its relationship to collecting. Um, you, You talked about sort of the tactile role that these pinball machines can play. But what is it, just simply about having a physical object um, that also contributes to this.
0: Yeah, the the physical object is important because I think of the brain taking in not just sights but sounds and information through touch. And I think one of the great things about pinball or something like it, like maybe collecting uh, classic cars and restoring cars, is it has more of a an engagement quality right so it's not just the look of it like if you're collecting a stamp or a baseball card you can you're you're familiar with the imagery but pinball and probably automotive collections you know you can drive it or you can play it and it has that sort of fun quality of restoring it as well so that's another part of the hobby that um everyone in this in this area gets into is once you have one it's going to break you know? So you have to learn to fix them. And it's just like automobiles. It's very satisfying to fix your pinball machine and get it working again. So that just adds to the the experience of the thing.
2: Yes. And I imagine it also really intensifies or helps boost our memory recall process. You've said something interesting where you said that items, um, often stand in for who we think we are. They are a reference to our sense of self. What do you mean by that?
0: You know, there's just something about long-term memories. So as a neuroscientist, I studied human memory, and we do this with brain imaging. And you can look at how there are recent, re- recent information that's presented quite differently than older information. And in the case of collections that have a nostalgia to it, you're actually talking about often, you know, decades ago. And so we we have these long-term memories that become very densely represented in our cortex. And so I think about that with collections. It's like the more densely interconnected your cortical representation is for a memory, um, as is typical for um, powerful childhood memories, um, when you see that pinball machine again, or you Get behind the wheel of a classic automobile from, you know, years and years ago, it's like this memory gets reawakened within your mind. And it's a very potent experience, because especially when you have touch, sound, and visuals, you know, and it, it just takes you back in time. And so there's something about that. We like to revisit our past through our collections.
2: Well, let me go to caller Diane in Sunnyvale. Hi, Diane, you're on.
3: Hi. Well, I collect hedgehogs, and it's a unique animal. It's not—it's native to every continent except North and South America. So when I started, I thought it would be difficult to collect. And I now have over 500 hedgehog-shaped items.
2: And why it's, do you uh, think the hedgehog speaks to you so much, Diane?
3: Well, they were... It's, It was a common back in the days, very common in Germany, and I'm German heritage. And so they were very cute. They are cute, but and I always thought when I first moved to California, I was unique like a hedgehog. I was cute, but don't hug me, because I didn't come from a hugging sort of area like California is. (laughs) <laughs> 50 years ago so I'm a Californian now.
2: <laughs> Diane that is so funny because um yeah that was one thing I noticed when I moved here from Canada was that Californians were real huggers. But but Daniel I love what Diane is saying because we were just talking about how we often think of our collections or the things that we collect as representations of the self and Diane is just describing herself as a hedgehog, cute but not not cuddly. <laughs> yeah that,
0: that that's a that's a a great example. I I like how there are 500 hedgehogs. (laughs) It really is, I think that plays upon our collecting need to actually, um, you know, it's like the thrill of the hunt when you're, when you sort of identify with something, there's something really satisfying about getting another one and yet another one. And then at a certain point, you can't, you're just, you can't avoid (laughs) getting the next hedgehog. And so I, I think that's another key part of collecting that's so satisfying is even if you move across state lines, it says something about you and it's something consistent in your life, right, that you, that you can always refer back to. And we are hunter-gatherers. So we have the, the mammal brains of a foraging um, organism. And that is definitely part of collecting. Everyone has these wonderful stories about, you know, their their favorite hedgehog as well as the hardest one to find. And, you know, the the lore of the collection kind of takes on a life of its own at a certain point.
2: Yeah, you said we are hunter-gatherers. So is that connected to what you think might be the evolutionary basis for why we do this? Like the benefits of it?
0: You know, it, it probably is. So when you think about evolutionary psychology, you're often, you know, we weren't prepared to live in this scale of society, or the brain hasn't had enough time to catch up with adapting to a society this large and this electronically mediated at this point in history. So I always think about if you're going to think of, of an evolutionary reason for something, it's helpful to go back to a tribal past when we might have um, been migratory, you know, or um, at least had to go forage for food and goods. And I think that does increase our fitness. So in evolutionary terms, fitness means the chances of, you know, passing on genes. And certainly if you could save for a rainy day, um, and that's not just in terms of food, uh, that could also be uh, other resources like tools in the case of people. So we can attach ourselves to objects and we, you know, there's value in keeping those objects. I think it does play upon some really primal circuitry within the human brain
2: huh interesting you know there are people who collect an object to make money off of it later right or because they want the value of it uh and they see the potential for its rise in value and i'm wondering if you consider them true collectors like my impulse was to say no but somehow your description of hunter Gather is making me wonder if they are
0: okay yeah so um could you reframe the, the question? Do you
2: consider people bit? who collect an object to make money off of it later a true collector, Daniel?
0: Yeah, so if it's just about money, um, it, I think I would. <laughs> that's a tough <laughs> question. I think I would at any time you're acquiring for the future. I guess that's the pure hunter-gatherer collector, right? They have a specific thing in mind. They want to up the value to themselves. It's like being an investor. And I think within our investing lives, uh, that borders on collecting as well. So I have had a chance to talk to a lot of uh, people in hedge fund management or financial management. And they get attached to positions they hold in, on certain companies and they, they fail to sell them. Um, it's known as the endowment effect. You know, you, you can actually, that's purely to make money, but people kind of get um, roped into it and they begin to get too uh, attached. So I think even if you're planning purely for value, um, you, your brain is laying down memories and you might just become more attached than you realize.
2: Mm. We're talking with a brain and behavioral scientist from the University of Texas at Dallas, Daniel Crossick, about what he's learned about why we collect. And we'll talk more about it after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. welcome back to forum i'm mina kim vintage posters coffee mugs hot wheels what do you collect this hour on forum we're talking about what we collect why we collect those items the benefits our collections bring us and also the evolutionary and cognitive reasons we collect at all we're talking with daniel krozek uh, he is a professor of behavioral and brain sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas. And we're talking with you, our listeners, what's your favorite item in your collection? Why do you collect what you do? Do you have a funny story related to your collection or or telling us about the most unusual thing you've ever done to try to acquire a piece of your collection. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at forum. Call us at 866-733-6786. Moo writes on Discord, I appreciate tourism activities that promote collection, which also creates returns and repeat visits or an attempt at completion, like collecting the visitor stamps at the national parks. It's fun to look for the stamp station, mark your book or paper, and to look back on them later to remember those trips. Jen on Discord writes, and shout out to our Discord community for sharing so many stories and comments about their collections. Jen writes, I collect postcards. I have several hundred by now, both ones I've collected on my own trips and ones my friends send or bring back for me From wherever they are. I love having them as travel souvenirs, and I'm trying to be better about writing little notes about what I saw, experienced, and learned at that place on the back, like a mini diary entry, instead of just keeping it pristine. I find the oversaturated, clearly photoshopped Y2K ones hilarious, and am a sucker for anything remotely vintage or artistic. Well, I want to bring Vicky Chung into the conversation right now. Vicky is KQED's social media associate in audience development hey vicky
6: hi mina thanks for having me thanks for coming on you collect postcards too right i do um i totally relate to what jen from discord said about having that um being attracted to anything vintage or artsy that's totally me yeah what's a postcard that's really special to you vicky So I started collecting because of a family trip that we took to China in 2009. Um, I was like 10 years old, maybe, and had very little money. But I remember acquiring this gold and red um, postcard that had a big pig on it. And it just said, welcome to Hong Kong. And I think what really attracted me was, wow, I have no money. This is so cheap. And I, as a 10-year-old, can buy this (laughs) with my own money. (laughs) But I think I also had the mentality of wanting to get something small to remember this trip because I knew we wouldn't be going back for a while, or at least not as often as I would have liked.
2: Mm, how did you know that?
6: Um, just based on experience. We had only gone to China once about when I was about five years old at that point, And my mom was kind of like, hey, like, we might mm. not see your grandparents for a while. So just remember this trip.
2: Yeah. Well, you also collect stickers, as I understand it. Do you want I, to tell us a little bit about your sticker collection?
6: Totally. Um, I have what my friends consider a knick-knack problem. I'm a <laughs> huge <laughs> accumulator of knick-knacks, and stickers happen to be one of them. I have them plastered all over my water bottle, laptop, uh, walls even. Nice. And uh, so...
2: Caroline, who produced today's segment, told me that you are also into your pig stickers. And do you
6: connect that with your Hong Kong postcard? Yeah, I guess I didn't really make the connection, but there definitely is something there. I think it all kind of goes back to this nostalgia factor of remembering this trip that sort of kickstarted a little souvenir collection and postcard collection and... I have a lot more pig stickers and prints and postcards than I realize because of that.
2: So you said your friends have mentioned your collection to you. So
6: do you display it? Is it out for a lot of people to see? Oh, absolutely. Um, If you stop by my desk, the entire wall is covered and so are the walls in my room. Um, I'm trying to say it's because I'm a maximalist, but really I'm running out of storage space. (laughs) So what does
2: your collection mean to you or what does it remind you of? Why do you think you want to have it out and around you?
6: I think it's really easy to remember the little thing or sorry, to forget the little things of your trips and all these places that you've been. So I think that this collection is a cool way to memorialize those little moments um, and having them out just brings me real happiness and joy.
2: Well, Vicky, thanks so much for telling us about your collection. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Mina. <laughs> Vicky Chung. Vicky Chung works at KQED in social media, is as, as a social media associate in audience development, and Vicky collects postcards and stickers. <laughs> and what do you collect, listeners? Let me go next to Jaime in San Francisco. Jaime, thanks for calling. What do you want to share?
7: Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, a, I'm a scientist, but besides that, I'm, I'm a bird watcher. And I think that one of the things that people um, that are interested in birds collect, less tangible things, are observations. And you keep a list of all the birds that you encounter um, in different places. And, and these records can serve the same purpose of these remembering a time and a place and the people that you were, how excited it was to go looking for the bird, nostalgic trips that you did with friends. Um and you can list that you can share with a broader community um, and also serves a purpose to share that information to the scientific community, conservation, understand uh, patterns of movements of birds. So I think that could be one of the ways that I see bird watchers collecting observations of birds that less tangible in, in its uh, nature, but has the same attachment of, of these other tangible items that we humans collect
2: yes i love that jaime that you collect observations and daniel jaime was also just sort of touching on the community that's built around searching for particular birds or or the beauty and wonder of observing particular birds and and that really is a big part of the benefits of collecting right that it really does create a community around you
8: I would agree. I love the way this conversation's evolved to talk about experiences. So this is very much in the realm of of actually collecting memories, particularly the bird watching instance because it literally is just um you know the the search, right? The search process and the the sighting is is in many ways this tremendously valuable thing and it becomes even more valuable when you share it with others, and especially when those others are part of that same community. So I've met, said the word tribal a number of times. It is like a tribal kind of phenomenon. If you're all into birdwatching or or um, collecting cars or stamps or postcards, it's, it's like you can compare notes with another like-minded person and you can kind of share your, your memories together in a way. So it, social bonding, is so critical and i think that's also the case with um we haven't talked yet about sports memorabilia but you're kind of like bonded with not just the team and its history but all of the fans can kind of share in this uh experience component and then i would say also the um these industries that have come up around like comic con you know you have such enthusiasm that people are dressing as the characters you know and Comparing their love of the thing to others. So it's a very uh, important part of collections often is to go to conventions or to meet up with kind of like your friends from the hobby because they're like fellow tribe members.
2: Mm. So would then would you go far as to say that there are mental health benefits to collecting?
8: I would go that far, no doubt. I think collecting is one of those activities that really um, can add some just interesting flavor to our lives. And it's, it inspires us to gather new memories. And it also helps us to exercise those brain circuits that are about exploring, right? Going out and doing things and a collection will inspire all of that, right? And I think it again, plays upon our desire to sort of go out in the world, experience new things. And uh, we get a little memento along and the memento is like a memory cue and i think building new memories in a positive way is a, is a very therapeutic kind of activity um and i think i don't think you need <laughs> much more evidence about this just because so many people devote so much time and effort and even money to travel for their collections it clearly means a great deal to them
2: We're talking with Daniel Krawczyk, Professor of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas, and we're talking with you, our listeners, about what you collect. Do you have a theory as well about why we collect? What is a favorite piece of your collection? What's the funniest story related to it? How far have you gone to add to it? What are your questions about why we collect? Have you inherited a collection? Was it a welcome gift? Email forum at kqed.org, call 866-733-6786, or find us on our social channels at KQED forum. And Daniel writes, the list of my collectibles is too long to put here. Antique radios, clocks, pocket watches, 78 records. I even owned a classic car. But trumpets connect me with my past and famous musicians I admire, such as Harry James. I have them restored whenever possible. I'm really into making old things new again. Being able to play these instruments makes them fun and meaningful. Gary writes on Discord, My wife and I have collected commemorative shot glasses from almost every country and city, cruise, etc., that we've visited together over the past couple of decades. Why? It's something that's usually available not too pricey, shelf-stable, and doesn't degrade, and we keep them in a glass cabinet, and it's a fun and memorable way to look back and consider the adventures we've shared with one another. Gary's point really underscores what you were saying about, uh, you know, really triggering memories for ourselves. Daniel's point about restoring trumpets and so on reminds me a little bit, Daniel, of, of the fact that you had to work to really restore that favorite pinball machine of yours, the, the Halloween one, right?
8: Haunted house. That's right.
2: Haunted house. Yeah. Haunted house one. Talk a little bit about, you know, how far you went (laughs) to try to get your pinball machine, um, collection complete with that particular pinball machine, but also just the process of restoring and what that did for you.
8: Yeah. This is again, one of those examples where the activity part of the collection can be the restoration and it's not true of all things, um, but when you whenever you're dealing with mechanical things or or like musical instruments, there's this desire to make something um you, you know, kind of the way you remember it, like when it would have been new in that era. And so what a lot of nostalgic collections will involve some level of restoration. And for me personally, I actually started pinball collecting very young. I got my first game when I was um fifteen. And by the time I was uh, graduating college, I had eight pinball machines, and I, I my dad had said after about four, like, "Okay, Dan, this is this is a lot. Let's let's stop," <laughs> you know. And then I immediately bought like three more games, and he was, of course, supportive. What a what a great uh, parenting moment! I mean, supporting your kids' collections, but my parents were were kind enough to let me store these. These machines in their basement up in the Northeast. While I lived in California, Southern California, Northern California, and then moved to Dallas, and finally I was able to um, take my uh, one of my sons with me up to New York State, and he was also wonderful about this. I mean, he wins the the son of the year award. He helped me move all of these things into a U-Haul truck. And then we had an adventure driving from the Buffalo, New York area down to Dallas. And along the way we did all kinds of cool things like see the Muhammad Ali museum, where I got a great mug, which is a memento of that experience. And we saw the neon sign museum in Cincinnati and we spent time in Nashville. And so that has yet another uh, deep element to the collection is like, I, I always think of that. I called it the pinball run, you know, like the cannonball run movie. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to add to the lore of the collection by, you know, doing that, that with my son, taking that trip.
2: Yes. And it also really gets at the power of collecting to create experiences. Like if you collect something, it creates experiences along with it whether it be in its pursuit restoration or anything else let me go to joe in san francisco hi joe you're
9: on hey Mia. Hey. thank you so much for letting me call in it's your colleague here uh-huh. from, uh, from the station but uh I <laughs> another geeky
2: video dear video hey joe
9: game. yeah from the 80s and 90s i know it's not very long ago in people years but in technology years it's practically ancient so I've got all these Nintendo and Sega machines that were under my uh, bed in my Richmond district apartment. Then during the pandemic, I moved to a bigger place with my wife and all of a sudden I pulled them all out and put them on shelves and oh my God, I had a video game museum, (laughs) (laughs) kind of a lot.
2: Wow, that is so cool,
9: Joe. 80s, 90s video games. It's like a historical record. It real, no really is. You could it goes from the original Mario Brothers all the way through to the present day. You can play your way through video game history right in my garage, <laughs> and uh, you know the the, the your your guests really hit me where I live because a lot of it is this experience of having played these games with my best friends growing up, and I really culture the place with with you know old magazines and posters from the era. And have like a kind of a spot in the garage that really feels like you go back in time when you sit in these seats yeah. in front of the, in these particular games. And my friends still occasionally find time to come by in their busy lives, and we kind of go in the time machine and play together.
2: Wow, that's really cool, Joe. I I wonder, Daniel, do people collect things in part um, over the over their to to reflect their lifetimes, like almost as an autobiographical impulse too?
8: I think there's no question about that. Autobiographical memory are those that that's the type of memory that is stored as episodes in your mind. And they're specifically episodes about your life. And we all vary in our nostalgic uh, capacity, maybe, you know, and and for whatever reason, I'm one of those people that, you know, very much like the caller, uh, I like to think about, my childhood and, and like my adolescent years, and I like to, um, you know, I like to 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 have those memories come alive, and so collecting can very much um, benefit you in that way. And I like also how you can bond with other people from that same era. It's almost like you're recreating the past. You're kind of time traveling to a formative period in your life. And it's not just about the objects, it's about the experiences. Mm -hmm. And that can be the restoring. It can also be just chatting with a like-minded person or a friend or even a stranger. And you can bond over these shared memories. And it's almost like meeting someone from your past in a way. So items in a collection can link us to the past. And that can actually serve as a link socially to other people who get it, you know? And again, not everyone has this. There are people that are less nostalgic and for whatever reason, they just don't think that way. But there's a strain of us within society and some of these callers certainly are part of that. And we just have this real love of autobiographical memories and it, yeah. it, it's just somehow very satisfying.
2: Let me see if I can squeeze Sean and San Mateo in before the break. Sean, go ahead, you're on.
9: Hi. I'm calling because I'm addicted to plants. Uh, I get to give it more of like an addiction sometimes than a collection. Um, I like to know everything about a plant and I have a garden that's just chock full of plants where I can't get anything else in.
2: You know what, Sean, you are raising some interesting points about addiction versus collection. Really quickly. Why do you think it's an addiction other than a, other than a
9: collection sometimes? Because it, it it hampers my ability to actually move around in my garden. Uh-huh. Like, there's pots full of things everywhere. I'm getting new ones even though I don't have a space to put them. They're all over the place, and I'm just obsessed with watching everything bloom.
2: (laughs) Well, Sean, thanks for sharing that. And right after the break, Daniel, I really do want to get your thoughts about, you know, when collections or collecting can cross the line into something that we wonder is totally healthy for us or totally great for us. We have listeners asking questions like, what is the difference between collecting and hoarding and so on? So we'll get your thoughts after the break, and we'll hear from more listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing about your collections and talking about why we collect with Daniel Crossick, a behavioral and brain scientist at the University of Texas at Dallas. And uh, just before the break, Daniel, we heard from Sean, who was saying, you know, he has a really hard time getting around the backyard because he's so into collecting plants. And he's starting to wonder maybe if he's addicted uh, to plant collecting. And I'm wondering... What are some signs when we should start asking ourselves if our collections are healthy for us?
8: Yeah, that's a great point. So there can be a downside to collecting, I think, in a really simple way. It may just be instances in which you've overdone it, like you've just gone too far with the collection. You got too involved in the thrill of the hunt and just acquired you know, maybe more, more objects than you planned to. And we can sometimes get too attached to the objects, and it's really a judgment call by the person. I think there's a lot of subjectivity here. Um, when a collection is bringing you joy and it's helping you to meet other people and bond with other people, um, and it it gives you some extra meaning in your life, those are all really positive things. However, if you've you know if your space is now very limited because you've you've maybe got too many plants or or pinball machines or or boxes of comic books, um, it can start to become in a way not healthy for us, where it doesn't make us feel good. And a cluttered space tends to be a little bit stressful for everybody. And uh, one thing I would link it to is hoarding is a symptom of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD and within the brain we know that some of the uh, some of the studies on on hoarding specific behaviors um, will have activation of an area known as the insula which is quite important for linking emotion to our cognition and also those deep long-term memory circuits seem to be involved and so when you have someone with a hoarding disorder like in a in a brain scanner doing doing functional mri what you will tend to observe is they'll be more stressed uh, when you're asking them to give up something that's theirs. And typically it's even like just newspapers or magazines. They have a very hard time letting go and they show a different profile of brain activation where they're sort of overly attached to something. And they will even say, "You know, I know I've gone too far. I know this is making me stressed, but I can't quite stop doing it. So it does mimic some elements of an addiction Um, but, uh, they are distinctly different in that, um, I think you can, uh, link it to other, other behaviors that, uh, that sort of fit within the obsession or compulsion realm. So in, in true mental health terms, uh, this does link back to OCD, but, um, just within everyday life, you can also find, you know, maybe it's time to thin out the collection a little bit at certain points in our life.
2: Well, Beth, it's interesting how some people are collectors and others are minimalists. While some people may have begun collecting something during the pandemic, I did the opposite. I decluttered and got rid of 50% of what we owned. I really dislike sensory overload. Charlie asks, I wonder if collecting's popularity now is largely the product of the size of our personal residences rather than an avocation. Is this reserved to the wealthy? And what is the future of collecting in the digital age? Hmm. Do you have any thoughts for Charlie, Daniel?
8: Those are fascinating questions. So I think one of the elements that we have seen in society is, is you know, more people have home theaters now, and perhaps there is more of a teardown culture of smaller homes get replaced with really large homes. Um, and I, I guess it's all just personal style to some degree. Um, I, I, I agree that it can be difficult to avoid clutter you know, maybe because we have this sort of foraging, collecting circuitry within our brains, we have a tendency to keep acquiring and we will fill up the space, however yes. large it is or however small it is. It's not a unique problem. I think everyone's had that kind of experience. As to whether it's reserved for the wealthy, you know, that's a really interesting point as well. So so collections only have value to you, right, specifically. And then as you join a community of collectors, now the value gets embellished amongst the group. And so I think there can be instances in which collecting becomes quite difficult. There are definitely pinball machines I would love to own, but I'm just simply not going to buy because they have reached a price point that doesn't make any sense for me. And I think a lot of us uh, maybe feel that way with um, some of these uh, you know, very expensive sports memorabilia items or... Um, people collect movie props, you know, or art. Yes. So, so the prices can become astronomical as we've as we've seen. So, um, getting to the point of, uh, you know, what what to do about that. I, I guess it does. It things change, you know. So, I think collect collectible items lose value over time as people sort of sell their collections or sort of age out of wanting to collect something. So, the, the value is always in flux. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone should really be too limited by space because you can always try to collect a smaller object. It could still have maybe the same sort of um, appeal.
2: Well, let me go to Evelyn in San Francisco. Evelyn, you're on.
10: Good morning. A lovely show. I am a collector of many, many things. But my first collection uh, that I started when I was about nine is of Pillsbury Doughboys. (laughs) And when I was about nine, um, on the back of some cereal box, probably Cheerios, if you... and Maybe that's the wrong company. Anyway, on the back of a cereal box, if you sent in a dime and a box top, you could get the original Pillsbury Doughboy. And I still have that original Pillsbury Doughboy with its little plastic stand that he actually stands up in and you could push your belly in. I don't think, I don't know if it makes a noise. I can't remember. Um, And now it's very discolored with age because that was like 60 years ago. And um, and then over the years, I just collected more and more. I have poppy. I have, uh, I don't have the dog or another animal that I don't, never knew existed. But I have bowls and I have a cookie jar and I have Mm -hmm. uh, other statues and soap holders and different things. And the cookie jar, when you open the cookie jar, you get the Pillsbury Doughboy laugh. <laughs> well, <But> It lived <laughs> it lived in my kitchen on a shelf in the window. And every once in a while, you'd hear this weird noise. And we couldn't figure out for years what it was.
7: Yes. And we never
10: opened the cookie jar because I didn't put cookies in it. And one day, my daughter and I are in the kitchen and she said, the noise is in the kitchen and she searches around and it made it again. And she took the lid off the cookie jar. Well, it turns out not only did take the, taking the lid off the cookie jar, make pop, uh, the Pillsbury Doughboy laugh, but the sun hitting it at certain times of the day. Oh. made it. And so it was like, it had come alive in our kitchen. <laughs> My gosh, even, can you do the laugh? Can you do it for us? <laughs> oh, it's, I, no I can't <laughs> I'm sure that your technician there can do it we'll you we'll know. try to find they it we'll try to that, find
2: it I can hear though the joy you know that, uh, yeah, yeah I, I can hear the joy the memories that that the Pillsbury Doughboy brings you thanks for sharing that story let me go to Caroline in Incline Village next Caroline what do you want to share Caroline
1: Hello. good <laughs> good morning friends good morning I wanted to share that I have become a declutterer over the last six months as well. I cannot stand to have too much stuff around. That said, my crazy obsessive collection has long been cat whiskers and, funny enough, bird feathers. Ooh. And, um, and bird feathers, uh, I, I will uh, share a, a quick story. I came home the other night from walking our dog and was so excited to have picked up um, the large feather of a bird of prey, uh, which hadn't happened before. And, and three other beautiful little feathers, I managed to get them home with the dog. We have a sightless dog, so it's a, a bit of a challenge. Um, get them home, and I put them carefully on the kitchen countertop. One of our cats, one of our cats ate the smallest, um, very special. This is assumably because I didn't actually see her, but I must have spent the next half hour trying to find that little bit of feather that was going in my collection. Yeah. And I thought, you know, geez, Louise, there's something not quite right with me. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> but, and the cat feathers I collect because I consider them good luck. That's, you know, cats use them for a reason. And yeah. whenever I find... Um, One of our beloved cats who passed recently had the longest uh, whiskers. And whenever I come across a whisker on the floor, we have two senior kitties now, and neither has extensively long whiskers. But if I pick up a long whisker, I think it's Charles who's come to say hello. So there you go. They don't take up much space, and they really keep me present when I collect them, present in the moment. And, yeah, I am this obsessive feather and whisker collector.
2: Well, Carolyn, thanks for sharing uh, your collection. So many people sharing. Renee writes, I collect pepper mills. I started with my love of pepper. I have more than 100, and they are pretty much all unique, including five musical pepper mills and quite a few rare dance pepper mills. My problem is I'm running out of shelf space to display them, but that doesn't stop me. Heather tweets, I've collected concert tickets for about 40 years. It's more difficult now that most tickets are digital, but I still manage to save something from the show, so I have a memory of the experience. Another listener writes, it seems that some corporations have discovered the need for some people to collect. Beanie Babies come to mind. You know, I've been curious about that. Uh, You have pointed out, Daniel, that kids collect more than adults or are into collecting. And I just keep thinking about when I was growing up, those commercials that were always telling me to collect them all. And I know that they're still out there, but um, you know, we don't watch a lot of cable TV in my home. But um, is that is there some manipulation there with regard to especially kids who collect just the whole collect them all thing?
8: I I guess you'd have to talk to a toy company executive. I'm sure they're. I'm sure it was good for sales, you know? So um, I think one thing, the link to childhood is very interesting because collections can be a way for a child to sort of have some power in the world. I think of like um, I had electric trains growing up and it's almost like having your own little world that you control. And it's a big part of play, right? To represent the world in some enriched way. And I think that's why it's so prevalent. Once you have the first, you know, Pillsbury Doughboy, you want to get the the adjacent characters so that you can have a little family of little dough people or whatever it may be. And so uh, kids... Get very into collecting. And I love the example of the uh collecting feathers and whiskers. So I wanted to mention animals sometimes have collecting tendencies. Yes. So I have this wonderful small dog. She's a Pekingese mix, and she loves this one ball. So it's a rubber ball that we play fetch with, and that's the only one. She let you know, she knows it by sound, probably by smell, definitely by look. And that is her ball. And then we we added a another puppy and we got a bunch more toys. And our Pikachu will take the toys and like put them in her dog bed like a collector. Like she's got this dragon horde of of the dog toys. And it just it's like incredible. How does that happen? You know, we didn't do anything to encourage that behavior, but you can see like animals kind of have a collecting tendency as well.
2: Yeah, really gets at the biological and evolutionary and all the other things that you were talking about by studying animals and why they collect and what parts of their brains are firing when they do it it's all very fascinating and we're talking about collecting with Daniel Krasik and with you you are listening to Forum I'm Mina Kim And let me read a couple more comments, huh? These are interesting. So Rose writes on Discord, I review menstrual cups for the wire cutter. So I have a huge collection of them. For other review products, I donate things, but obviously these are not donatable after testing. Another listener writes, my boyfriend collects Funko Pops. They're kind of like square-shaped action figures. He buys me and his loved ones Funko Pops in hopes that we will start collecting them too. I don't want to, but I don't have the heart to tell him. there are are sort of like involuntary collections that are out there thinking about Rose and this listener 's boyfriend, like I basically now have a massive book collection because I get so many books sent to me Um, and so I decided then to start keeping the books of the interviews that I've done and actually now they've become really quite special um, because they're attached to so many memories and are sort of autobiographical over my radio career a little bit but yeah involuntary collections do you have any advice for this person who doesn't have the heart to tell their their boyfriend they don't want the Funko Pops
8: (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's an interesting element to collecting as well. And it's one of the things that's so fascinating is to one person, you know, it literally is one person's trash is another person's treasure. Um, It is amazing how personal collections can be because one person can can want nothing to do with it and the other is just fascinated by it. And the Funko Pop example, I mean, that is that is brilliant marketing. So Funko Pops are these little characters with kind of large heads, almost like a bobblehead, but they've gotten licenses with so many um, television shows, movies, you know comic characters you name it there's a funko pop of that character and so they've managed it's almost like um some kind of meta collection where it's like they've taken all these nostalgic collectible things and kind of made them all funko pops so that is a brilliant company um if you if you're looking for stock tips like <laughs> look into that funko pops thing <laughs> but you you never really know when a collection's going to take hold i think it's just you know the advice would be to sort of go out there experience life um you can either collect experiences or objects or sometimes both and often the more you get involved with something the more nostalgic it will become and then you might want to collect something like special books you know or that remind you of particular uh interviews you did you know marking an occasion can can also be a good uh memory cue so i think that's really quite special also, as long as it doesn't get out of control, you know, you might try out a collection and you never know when it's going to take hold.
2: Well, Kathy tweets, I'm a librarian and I collect bookmarks. When I travel, I find local bookstores and ask for a store bookmark or business card. They make nice memories of places where I've been. Tim writes, I used to collect tea bag tags, precise little cardboard squares or hexagons with graphics, which were attached with a tiny staple and a string. Friends would bring me unique ones from their travels around the world. So, Daniel, what are you gonna do with your, or what will you take from your mom's gnome collection, right? I mentioned gnomes in the introduction, in part because I understand that your mom collects gnomes. Tell us a little bit about it. And does that gnome collection mean something to you?
8: Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point. So my parents are both collectors. My dad collects Life magazines, my mom gnomes. And it was kind of a retirement project of my mom. She got very into gnomes on eBay and gnomes are these little elf type characters with large hats, red or green hats. And uh, there's a surprising amount of gnome collectibles out there. (laughs) And I think really the reason she did that was um, she had read this wonderfully illustrated gnome book that was produced in the late 70s to my brother and I when we were kids. And so that always reminded her of our childhoods. And so I think that that was the nostalgic link for her. It was about motherhood. And it does it does have meaning for me as well because I can also relate to those memories. And uh, the collection was in some ways about my childhood, but also her as a mother. And I think that was all wonderful. You know, it's it's a very um, meaningful kind of emotional connection uh, that can, that can be brought about from collecting.
2: Yeah, well, thank you for exploring with us all the different ways that collecting can benefit us and all the different reasons that we do it, Daniel Krawczyk. Really appreciate it.
8: Thanks, Mina. I really enjoyed this conversation
2: professor of behavioral and brain sciences at the university of texas at dallas thank you listeners you really made the show with your memories your collections uh, your thoughts about why you collect the things that you do my thanks to caroline smith for producing today's segment i'm mina kim this is forum <laughs>
8: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation,
1: the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the heising
4: Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum.
5: Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi
6: on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
1: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.